0: Welcome to the Inspiro podcast, a podcast exploring personal growth, leadership, strategy, communication, and fulfillment. We are your hosts, Jason Luchtefeld and Bill Woodburn. I'm here as a dentist transitioning into a career to help facilitate individuals and their organizations towards a more fulfilling
1: future. Hi there, I'm Bill Woodburn, and I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist in Austin, Texas. I'm fascinated by the way people come together to solve problems, whether that's couples or families, dental practices or organizations. We're gonna be exploring a lot of topics and for us to be able to be free to do that, I have to let you know that this is not intended to be dental advice or counseling advice.
0: When something happens, when we are, somebody is talking about their narrative, things happen. What I hear is, it happened for a reason and then they go on uh that makes my skin crawl because (laughs) i don't think it happened for a reason (laughs) and i think that that is a uh, a soothing cognitive tool that people are using to try to ease the discomfort of what happened rather than realizing that Realizing the, how difficult the reality can be if there isn't a reason attached to whatever the event was.
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm going to agree, but I'm also going to add in our defense as human beings. (laughs) What that's expressing isn't just La La Land, that's expressing our need for an inclusive story. What that tells me when somebody says, oh, you know, it probably happened for a reason. It's like, Oh, you're struggling to fit this event into your narrative. Otherwise, you'd tell me what the reason was. When you affirm that it must be a reason, but I don't know what the reason is, it's like, oh, dude, this just torpedoed your narrative, and you have no place for this tragic event to have happened to you. It was not part of the plan, it was not part of the narrative, and you are really struggling. Yeah, I'm with you. That's not always a pl- a great place to head, but I see why people head there. And I'm I know what they're really saying is this this doesn't fit. Not only that, if I included my narrative, it breaks a whole bunch of other parts of the narrative. Mm. I will always be safe. I will always be cared for. Um no one will ever leave me. You know, I mean, all these parts to this person's narrative literally just exploded and are lying in pieces on the ground and they're looking at it going well, I, I I guess there must be a reason. I hope there's a reason. I can't remember what the reason would be right now because none of this fits. Yeah,
0: the reason is something that comes in the future that then helps to form a a completion to fit the narrative.
1: Which is we so, often talk, talk about resolution to grief or whatever. One of the important pieces is we've now built a narrative that you know includes things like that happening to us.
0: Okay, so are you saying that I need to be more gentle and respectful for to people that use that phrase? Or are you telling me that I can say, um, it sounds like you need to work on your narrative?
1: Well, you can say it. You can do either one. I personally <laughs> like to remind myself to, that they're doing the best they can. Yeah. That maybe, <laughs> maybe there's some compassion there, even though, like you, that phrase tends to annoy me in a, no end. Uh, and I do remember a couple of times as a counselor, somebody using that to sort of push away the experience, saying, well, I'm sure there's a reason for this. And I said, yes, I'm sure there is, too. But some of those reasons you're not going to like.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, right? there are reasons. But if it means I'm sure there's a good reason, I'm sure there's a soothing and comforting reason. No, there may be a very uncomfortable reason this thing happened. There may be a, a flat-out bad reason this thing happened. Uh, we have to make place for those, too. Okay, now that I <laughs> was able to <laughs>
0: uh, that one a little bit. open up to you, Bill, and have you um, talk me down from the <laughs> happened-for-a-reason ledge. Um <laughs> I'd like to talk about things, more things. So we've talked about journaling. Uh, we've talked about the beneficial use of reading novels, watching plays, and how those can be helpful for us cognitively, for ourselves, as well as even cognitively. It allows us to use our brains in creative ways, and that is good for our brain. So that's those are pluses. Um, I'd like to touch on the benefit of exercise to the brain. Yes. And so that's partly because you're generating blood flow and um, it's also the important key ingredient here from what I've read is that exercise releases brain derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. And that is sort of like miracle grow for the brain. It allows, it bathes neurons, allows the neurons to grow. It helps to uh, increase the durability of neuroplasticity and So that is a, if you needed an excuse to exercise and you have more appreciation for your brain than your body, then exercise for your brain and get that BDNF.
1: How do we do that though? I mean, I I don't have infinite time to exercise. Is there a more targeted way to go about that?
0: it's, It's the same advice that they would have heard in our last episode on the physical self-care and that's just 10 minutes of walking can be enough. And uh, preferably that is a little bit more vigorous walk. We, we don't want it to just be your sauntering down the neighborhood, uh, maybe a little effort to it, but 10 minutes has shown to have a- an effect. Mm-hmm. So it could just start there, simple, easy, and you're better off for it. The next thing, and I don't know if this is related. I'm I'm reading a book on about um Robert Hartman. He was a psychologist in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh Tennessee, New Mexico. He's from Germany originally. So he grew up in the era of uh Hitler. That's like that's when he left Germany. And so he talked about recognizing that Hitler was evil and it inspired him to look for ways for the good. Mm. So he, he became somebody that push pushes, teaches the importance of values oh, and okay. that as an avenue for us to do good. So to me, this is also cognitive. When we're doing a values assessment on ourselves, this is a cognitive part of us that Mm -hmm. is trying to interpret what it is we stand for. How do we want to live our lives? And so a values exercise and then living according to those values is a cognitive process that I think would be beneficial and helpful for us. So I wanted to get, I wanted to put that out there to the cosmos and let you kind of, uh, either feed on that or uh, add to that. If you had
1: anything, well, m- my immediate thought goes to you know there are these wonderful awful moments that we have sometimes when we begin to see our values clearly. Did you say wonderful awful? Wonderful awful. Yeah. Wonderful awful. Okay, I'm gonna need uh, some explanation on that. I was I was looking for a word that would encompass both, but I'm not sure we've got that in English, so I just okay. like went for it. Um, where we get, begin to get clear on our values, the, th- the things we value, and we realize that our narrative works against that or doesn't include them or leads us away from them, that can be a very convicting moment. Um, clients I work with who are addicts and suddenly realize that the behavior, the living out of their narrative day-to-day regularly violates the values they have as a human being and something's got to change. On a lighter way, I think that happens to all of us before we make some crucial life changes. But without the value piece, there's no way to assess the narrative. You could have it, like Hartman was talking about you know, the the Nazi narrative of the 1930s and 40s was so powerful, it was easy for people to be swept up into that narrative unless you were very careful and very grounded in your own values that gave you a place to stand so you could assess the narrative. Otherwise, it's, well, everybody's thinking this and, and everybody's doing this and it's what I'm hearing from every place and it's on the radio and, and so it's got to be right and that's how we get our values shaped for us. I mean, our narrative shaped for us because we don't regularly have our values to reflect hmm. on it.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Do you have <laughs> a preferred method or activity of core values, self-assessment?
1: <laughs> uh one of the ones I learned from Bob Fraser was the idea of the life map, which is a little bit like our narrative, mm-hmm. uh, but it also has the, that history of events. But it also includes our actions and reactions to those. That I think tells us so much, particularly if we can get down to our to, to the times when it just flowed out of us. Um, the other exercise I really like, and I I, I do this pretty regularly is I call it your best day exercise. You remember that, that really best day you had, it may have been last week or years ago or whatever, when everything seemed to flow and you felt both important in the world and yet you sort of knew your place that you weren't the center of the world. You felt effective, you felt creative. Well, what was going on? What were you doing? What were you thinking? what story did you have in your head what dialogue did you have in your head about that that led you into that place of flow into that place of joy you know let let's, let's go back and, and dissect that a little bit that was telling you something that moment when things were good and right and you had this, this this fully human presence in the world something good was happening let's see if we can deconstruct that and figure out what all the pieces were so can that be done with a prospective
0: best day description?
1: What would would make the best day? Yes. Uh, I have tried that with clients. Um, The problem there is that one becomes so overlaid with sort of what I'll call the cultural artifacts. Uh, The commercials I've seen of what I ought to own to have a good day and, Mm-hmm. The people I've talked to of what I ought to be doing and, you know, you know, and, you know, my, my father said I should be a pro football player. I was like, yeah, so yeah, you can, but it's, you're gonna run into a lot of interference. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so then I'd like
0: to run through the life map exercise. When we guide people on that, we, we tell them to uh, draw their life in Uh however descriptive form they would like we call it a life map that doesn't mean it has to be a map it could be a circle a square a line that is chronological from zero to however old you are and along that line you draw events however you want to create that and we want you to describe the significant events in your life um, is how I've done it you can certainly uh, give your your additions to this once I'm done, Bill, based on what might be slightly different or how to interpret it differently. And once you've done that for your whole life, we often do it in a small group. And so we're reading it to each other as a icebreaker tool as well as a, a values interpretation tool so that people that are hearing it get to interpret what values were demonstrated, when you read it and and how you read it. I think it's much more difficult, kind of like you, the, interpreting your own narrative is difficult. I think it can be difficult to interpret our own life maps for values. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It's just, I think that doing it with a significant other or an important person in your life or your counselor or whoever can be a valuable tool to help with interpretation of what the what values those events stand for, and how that might be then putting it uh, an impression on what your values are now, and how you might be able to then live them going forward. Oh,
1: absolutely. I I like that you included that. It's best if it is witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, my mentor used to say that you know, so many of the really important moments in our lives we have to go through alone and there is no witness. Hmm. And there is something very healing to talk about those moments of struggle with a kind and non-judgmental witness, whether that's a group or a loved one or a counselor or whoever, but but someone you can feel safe doing that with. Hmm. Um, right there, there is. we are such social creatures and And to do that and have a witness can radically change that struggle into something that is a learning moment or even a moment of triumph. The other piece that I like to do sometimes I have longer to work on people's life stories than you do in the strategic planning where you just, you're trying to move on to some other things. Uh, I can in counseling revisit them often. I, also help people relabel moments ah can you give an example sure i'll give a personal example i occasionally do in the ei workshop Um, as many people know i have terrible dental phobia so when i went in to have all four quadrants of my mouth rebuilt that was a huge emotional moment a real struggle low point a time of both fear and determination and a lot of things had to come together. And I went through several appointments to do that. And at the end, I remember walking out on that last day. It was, you know, that thing where just a check and everything's fine. And, you know, you're walking out. And I was stopped by, you know, some of the team members. And they said, we just want you to know you're our hero. And all of a sudden, this thing I thought, was frightening a struggle but kind of like why did this have to happen to me i suddenly reinterpreted it as that was a heroic act mm-hmm. now did it make it not scary no not painful no but i i i, I put it someplace different in my narrative this wasn't that thing I had to do anymore. It is a way I proved myself. It's a way that I spoke my values into the world. It was something that that I achieved. That's what how I stored that that heroic moment. It wasn't a tragedy, it was a triumph. Great example. Thank you. Just a re, just a relabel. Mm-hmm. But it helped to to have witnesses with the relabel.
0: Well, it sounds like the witnesses were able to provide an alternative, a potential place for that. And even if you didn't accept fully that you were a hero, Mm -hmm. I mean, let's play even devil's advocate here, and you disagree with them in that it still is going to change your perspective. Yes. Even if you don't want it to. (laughs) we we don't have that much power over what we think and how we think that even somebody coming and saying wow you're a hero is going to feel good and is going to be beneficial
1: this is also a good time to talk about that rather pernicious cognitive piece that we have called self-talk mm. which shows up in psychology particularly in counseling is the kind of negative self-talk that we develop that keeps keeps us in keeps us ashamed of things oh you should have done better you should have done it sooner you know how could you make that stupid mistake and who do you think you are and you know all those things that that that, that can be repeated over and over and over like an inner dialogue particularly when we do something wrong uh, particularly when we uh, you know do something that mess, mess runs afoul of our values that might just be guilt but that inner dialogue can change it into a source of shame hmm. that, oh, we weren't aren't worth anything. So the problem that we run into is, let's say at that moment, I had an inner dialogue that said, you know, that I'm the victim here and that this was a terrible, tragic thing that happened to me that I somehow did not deserve. And they said, you're our hero. Now I've got cognitive dissonance cognitive dissonance is this weird discomfort that shows up in the human brain when we're trying to hold two opposite and competing ideas at the same time we don't like doing that okay mm-hmm. that's just how we're built it's you, you know i'm i'm sure there's some zen master that can do it but most of the rest of us it does not feel good and we want to resolve that discomfort well that we could resolve it either way i resolved it that day as letting the heroic part push away the part that said, you know, this is a victim, you ought to be angry at all this. You're a victim, you ought to be angry at this. No, you're a hero and you have trying Okay, but there was a real moment of cognitive dissonance. Uh, that is not easy to do. Many times through life, we get hit with something that contradicts our inner dialogue. And there's cognitive dissonance. And we struggle to to change to accept the new thing. And sometimes we shouldn't accept the new thing. Sometimes that cognitive distance is reminding us that no, we had the right idea in the first place. So it's not as simple as just always go with what people tell you. But there are times that someone says, I care about you, I'm on your side. Uh, I, I I love you, I'm loyal to you. And that darn little inner dialog is saying, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. I am too worthless. For anyone to actually feel that way about me. And now we got cognitive distance and we got to struggle. And it takes some courage and some determination. To hang with it long enough and to hold both those things in our head and not resolve it the quick and easy way, which is always going to go in favor of the habitual and the the self-talk. I mean, that's just it's like, OK. And I know people like that. I'm sure you know people like that. They They always default to the self-talk. Are those people that are really hard to buy a gift for because you know they're going to get embarrassed and not going to like whatever you because it just causes too much cognitive distance when, when you show up with it. So yeah, um it's it's cognitive, it's not just emotional. It 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 is a a kind of of narrative that says, no, this is what this means. One of the exercises I do with clients that I do with myself sometimes, and I really recommend is sometimes i suggest people just let something in experimentally what if i just let myself be a hero in this moment and see what it's like what i what if i just let myself feel worth that compliment i just got from a colleague just right now i don't have to change my whole life okay i don't i don't i don't want to do battle mono a mono with my negative self-talk right now how, how about just you know I'll, I'll just just for right now just to see what it's like just experiment with it what if i i had a a morning where i just didn't tell myself that i was a total screw-up try to go through an hour maybe a whole morning maybe a whole day and again just experimentally just, let's just let's just see what happens with that new narrative. There's the idea of course if I can't run it I was like no no no. This is an experiment. It's a game. Let's just try it.
0: So that we're we're dipping our toes now in the world of critical thinking. And I think that uh spending a whole episode talking about critical thinking would be worthwhile, so I'm not going to go any further into it now, but that's that's the world of Where cognitive dissonance comes from, for me, where I learned about it, was Mm -hmm. learning about different critical thinking tools, knowledge, uh, logical fallacies, cognitive biases, that kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. it would be fun to talk about some of those at some point, and they would fit into this idea of cognitive health and cognitive self-care, to me, is, does mean that we spend some time to learn about critical thinking and learn about how we might not think critically in certain areas because of our narrative, because of our different biases and stuff like that. And cognitive dissonance is one of those that comes up. So that's, I'm glad you brought it up. And I think that's really valuable. I I like your, uh, your tool there, your tip on what to do with that and how to experiment with that. And I think we should spend some time in that world with a full episode. Oh, yes. Let's do okay. that. Let's then do that. I'm going to come back to the self-talk. So yes. I think that there is, I agree with you on the power of negative self-talk and how intrusive that can be. And there is also now a problem of toxic positivity. Yes, where we have where everything is uh everything gets a positive spin put onto it and i think both of those are are not good for us and our cognitive health and we should work <laughs> to find our the nice middle ground where if we are overly negative your experiment is fantastic. Spend a day where that's not true and see what happens. But on the other end, that doesn't mean go through the day where everything is rainbows and unicorns, because that's also not real. That it's okay to have bad things happen within a day and the day still be good. And admitting those things, like admitting when we make a mistake, there's value in that versus saying oh that uh that was that was supposed to happen because now i'm going to get a new pair of shoes i don't know so uh that that's uh, my addendum to uh-huh. the negative self talk is to also be careful with the
1: positivity and i really I like stories and I love to be a storyteller. And so I'm constantly reading some of the old traditional stories and some of the Greek myths and whatever. And um, particularly the Greeks, but other people too. You'll notice that the heroes always have to do hard things. Things always get bad at some point. So when there's too positive a self-talk, what I I frequently do for myself or other people say, wait a minute, but what are we missing? Because the positive self-talk colors over things and blots them. out. It's like airbrushing your life. Mm. But, you know, some of those wrinkles and some of those rips are actually important Mm. and important experiences. I mean, I could, I could over positive my life, but then I couldn't tell the stories of the hard things I've done. Mm -hmm. Especially those hard things that do seem unjust. And it wasn't like, oh, well, I'm sure that there's a reason like, well, what if I just acknowledge that we are built to do hard things and we need to do hard things. Not all the time. Life should not be miserable, but there are moments when we have to do hard things. Mm -hmm. And that's not a, that's not a bug. That's a feature of being human being.
0: <clears throat> A few other things I have on my list to touch on in this area. They, these can go fast. <laughs> don't smoke. Smoking is bad for the brain. Uh, don't be an alcoholic. Too much alcohol is bad for the brain. And now we have more research that indicates that uh, binge drinking on weekends is also bad and for the brain as well as the body. And even... More than two drinks a day. Some are even saying, even one drink a day in certain individuals that we're finding genetic markers now that are telling us that alcohol could be worse than we thought for some people. The, uh, so avoid that if needed. And get good sleep. Uh, poor sleep, if you haven't already noticed, impacts your ability to think clearly.
1: I'm going to add a piece, though. Please do not to, not to disagree, but to add. If you're experiencing poor sleep, that's often a symptom of something wider. Okay. That you need to take. This isn't a moment of shame. I should just learn how to do good sleep better. Mm. Uh, there's not really there's not really a procedure for this. You can't. It's not like practicing makes you a better sleeper or something. It is a symptom that something else is going on. One of the possibilities is that this sort of self-talk or this cognitive piece that is worrying or or trying to figure out a threat is on hyperdrive. You know, it's a little like, you know, you've got, you've got the motor up to 3,000 RPM and you take the load off suddenly, like lying down and trying to sleep, and all of a sudden the engine is just going wild. That can, it can be like that for people. They are they are dealing with difficult days. They're dealing with difficult self talk about their day. They're dealing with different a, a difficult and and maybe shameful narrative of their day. And then they lie down. And you know, I've got clients say, I, I don't want to go to sleep. My head's a really bad neighborhood. You know, I don't want to go in there. And so I keep myself up as long as possible, finding more things to do, because. It's it's not going to feel good to lie down, so if that's happening, again, don't just try to blame yourself for not sleeping right. Go find out what's 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 pushing you to make sleep not a good place to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, th- <laughs> this too could be a whole its whole episode. Sleep is so valuable, but I think that we've gone too far, and we're ke- we're creating sleep hypochondriacs. And that's a problem because sleep is important, but that doesn't mean that your your life is ruined if you have a week of poor sleep. Yes. Um, that's not great, but that's not the end of the world. To your point, the idea of ruminating is, is wh- how I've read about what you described where we lay down and we just keep going through everything that happened during the day. The things that are unfinished is my problem where I know that there is somebody I have to talk to, or there's a project unfinished and I didn't get as much progress as I wanted today. And so it just, the ideas just keep going and going and going and going. And so I'm going to come back to something you suggested earlier and that's journaling. I found that it's really helpful if I can get some of those ideas onto paper it reduces the load on my brain. And sometimes it allows me to get to sleep. It not It doesn't always work, but sometimes that little thing helps
1: a ton. You know, that also brings up the uh, important piece, the cognitive, worrying. Yes. And a lot of people think of worrying as I need to figure out what to do. I define worrying differently, and I approach it differently worrying is a sign that we're feeling helpless because what worry is is continuing to throw ourselves against some wall hoping it'll move hmm. you, you know you're a bright guy i'm a bright guy most of my clients are bright folks you know if in 10 or 20 minutes they haven't figured out a plan to deal with something it's probably they're probably helpless in that moment of This may be something I can't fix. This may be something that I'll have to let happen before I have enough data to be able to approach it. I'll have to say this to that person and figure out how they react instead of trying to imagine all the possibilities and nail them down. It's like, so wait a minute, this is about helplessness. It's not planning. And it's not if I just knew what to do. And one day, if I worry enough, I'll come upon the magic. No, that's not what it's about. It's about addressing our own helplessness. Some of which is just baked into the world, mm. okay. Some of it are ways we've made ourselves helpless. Like, well, you know, I I I, I need to tell this person this thing, but but you know, I can't I, I can't make them upset. I I, I can't make them, uh, you know, angry. It, it's like, well, wait a minute. With that piece in place, you've made yourself helpless. Mm. So it's like, you no, know, if you're worrying, you may have made yourself helpless. The world just may be organized like that. Or the other thing that's going on is that you may be having a values conflict that you're avoiding, mm. which is, no, I need to do this, but I don't want to do this. One possibility is say, no, what, what values am I maybe violating here? And the worry and the helplessness is a is a, is a wake-up call that says, oh, wait a minute. I'm up against one of my values here or uh, the way I'm acting is not working or I'm dealing with a person and we have very conflicting values. So look in the values realm is a good place to go if you're worrying. It sounds like you ought to be planning, but the whole idea of worrying is worry is what you do when the planning doesn't work. I have a
0: quote for you that might fit here and kind of allows us to wrap this up over the next five to ten minutes. Tell me what you think about this. This is from Bertrand Mm -hmm. Russell. If an opinion contrary to your own makes you angry, that is a sign that you are subconsciously aware of having no good reason for thinking as you do. If someone maintains that two and two are five or that Iceland is on the equator, you should feel pity rather than anger unless you know so little of arithmetic or geography that his opinion shakes your own contrary conviction. The most savage controversies are those that matter, matters as to which there is no good evidence either way. Persecution is used in theology, not in arithmetic, because in arithmetic there's knowledge, but in theology there's only opinion. So whenever you find yourself getting angry about a difference of opinion, be on your guard. You will probably find upon examination that your belief is going beyond what the evidence
1: warrants. Oh, I like that. I like that that sense that your anger is actually functional in that moment. It's doing something. The other person isn't making you angry. You're angry, angry as a tool, as a response. Your your cognitive set is trying to fix something. Maybe it's a fear mm-hmm. like he was talking about. Maybe it's lack of knowledge, but it's it's not just this weird thing that happens. There's something going on. Yes. I'm going to also sound like a counselor for a minute. One of the big reasons why we often get angry at other people's opinions or thoughts is because there's a part of us that agrees with them.
0: Yeah. I've always heard it as that's probably something that we need to work (laughs) on. Like there's something that is hitting personal and rather than Dealing with that difficult item, we get mad at it. We get mad at the other person. We get mad at their idea or their statement.
1: I was talking to a, a, a colleague the other day who was so mad at this younger younger counselor we both know. And I finally looked at her and said, oh, she's just like you when you were that age. Hmm. I remember you. We I mean, we've been, we go back a long way. It's like, uh-uh. No, you, you, had, you struggled with that. What you're what you're seeing is that reminder of your history Mm -hmm. and and the mistakes you made and how painful that was. And that's unsettled you. You don't want to see it again. You know, you don't want to watch that movie again. You saw it the first time and it was already uncomfortable. Yep. And now she's sort of making you see it a second time and you're going, oh, my gosh, I made those same mistakes. How could I have been so dumb? Hmm. And you're angry at her. Not for her mistakes, but because she's making you watch that movie again. Wow.
0: With that, we should put the bow on the mental slash cognitive self-care topic, if that's okay with you.
1: Absolutely.